Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO and managing partner of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor. I'm a coach, a husband, recently a grandfather. Now, along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've achieved by continuing to elevate in living a fulfilled life by making a positive difference in my world. I'm going to invite you to join me as I delve into the details of the many wins of my guests in achieving their goals, along with, shall we say, the frustrations of the occasional deal gone wrong, because my guests are here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them in business and investing in real estate, from the life they're now able to live to the person they become along the way as they pursued their dreams in having the freedom they've gained by building a sustainable financial future for them and their family. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this episode of the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. Before I introduce my next guest, I want to just start the show by thanking you, the listener, for your feedback to our podcast and to remind and actually encourage you to send any of your comments, your suggestions for the show or any questions that you might have, send them directly to me at ceo at raincanada.com, ceo at reincanada.com. I'd look forward to receiving them taking a look at what suggestions you might have, answering any of your questions. So please feel free to do that. And in addition to that, if you're inclined, I'd invite you to rate the show and actually provide some comments on iTunes, SoundCloud, join us on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page or whatever app or platform works best for you for providing some feedback for us in anything that you would do is appreciated. So thanks in advance for that. Now, I'm just ready to get to work. Today, I'm joined by my real special guest, Dave Steele. I've been looking forward to my conversation with Dave, well, because for me, he's one of those individuals who really epitomizes the spirit of entrepreneurism. Since his humble beginnings right out of university in Calgary, I recall, Dave's totally and really been on a journey of building businesses, growing relationships, and supporting others to win and prosper in the world of real estate investing. He's the CEO of Western Canadian Properties Group, and Dave Steele just leads and holds a really big and really powerful vision for his company and his team. He's an accomplished and an award-winning developer, and Dave is actually the largest residential developer in northeastern British Columbia. Over the past 30 years, he and his team have helped more than 12,000 investors acquire over $1.5 billion worth of cash flowing investment real estate. Today, Dave and his team are focused in Fort St. John and Victoria, British Columbia, and they work with investors to build brand new rental properties and multifamily buildings in those areas. Now, in addition to all of that, Dave, along with his partner, Janet LePage, have Western Wealth Capital, and they've acquired actually a significant portfolio of multifamily apartments and buildings in Phoenix, Arizona, and that represents over $350 million and over 4,000 doors of multifamily units in that particular region, where they just see it as one of the strongest growth rental markets in the United States. So Dave takes a ton of pride in all that he does, and particularly on his attention to detail, along with 
the detail and his team's ability to deliver really high quality projects on time and on budget. Dave kind of lives by the under promise and over deliver mentality. He's driven by his spirit for entrepreneurial innovation, and Dave truly has lived a life of creating and building businesses and opportunities and supporting others to succeed. He's been actively involved in the growth of the entrepreneurial organization, our entrepreneurs organization, EO. It's a nonprofit organization which now has 12,000 entrepreneurial members worldwide. And in 1993-94, Dave served as EO's international president. Dave comes with lots of stories, lots of lessons to be learned, little nuggets to be picked up based on his experience that he loves to share and has happily done that many times with RAIN members on our stage. But today we're going to get a little bit more in depth and learn a lot more about Dave. So without further ado, my special guest, Mr. Dave Steele. Dave, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. I'm excited to have you on the show as I am with all my guests. And... Um, so welcome. Thanks, Patrick. You know, I, I'd like to kick off because we don't necessarily have a lot of information on you, although um, we do, but I would like to hear from you. You have a lot going on. You have been in business a long time. So if I was to just ask for an elevator pitch of what you do, what you got going on, what would that be? Well, thank you. We're the largest uh, residential developer up in Northeast BC. And we work with our clients to find investment properties all over North America. So over the last 30 years, we've helped about 12,000 individual investors buy properties in just about every market in Canada and every market in the Western U.S. And today we're focused on kind of three main markets, Fort St. John up in Northeast B.C., Vancouver Island and Victoria, where we think there's a huge opportunity, and Phoenix, Arizona. So it's really focused on helping people who want to own real estate as a way to build wealth. So take me back a little ways. I mean, because you've been doing this for almost 30 years. You've uh, Have you always played the real estate game? Where did it kind of start? Because you came out of university, likely you had your degree, whatever that might be. Give me, take me right back so that we can come forward fairly quickly. But I want to get a little bit of yeah. background. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, so I graduated from the University of Calgary with a business degree, had the distinction of graduating in the top 10% of the bottom third of my class every year. Nicely done. And uh, the best thing that ever happened was in university, I met a, a very good friend of mine who became my business partner for 30 years. Um, he passed away a few years ago from prostate cancer. But from the day we got out of university, uh, we were business partners. Uh, in fact, I was the president of the University of Calgary Ski Club. And uh, when he found out I was the president, he came up to me and said, look, I want to put on the biggest party in the history of the University of Calgary. So on the last day of school, uh, we put on a party that started at three o'clock in the afternoon and went until three o'clock in the morning. It was called the Buck Off. Uh, we actually brought in the, the uh, Gillies from Gillies Bar in Texas. We brought in a bucking machine. Uh, we had male and female mud wrestling. We had buses shuttling people out to this ranch uh, 10 miles outside of Calgary. And what it really showed us, we ended up uh, having about a thousand people show up to this party. And what it really showed us is that we could work together. So kind of from that, we both realized, hey, we were real entrepreneurs um, and we would meet every day at lunch. He actually got a job as a financial planner. I got a job as a mortgage broker, uh, which is the only job I've ever had in my life. So for about a six month period, I was a mortgage broker in Calgary. 
Uh, obviously not very smart because interest rates were 20% and trying to lend people money when interest rates are 20% isn't the easiest thing in the world. But what it was cool is we really learned that we could work together and we just uh, went out and every day we'd meet for lunch and talk about a different business idea. And so did you actually in that and all those business ideas that you went through was real estate what you landed on and stuck with or did you kind of have some false starts in some other industries? Well, it's kind of interesting. So when, when I graduated uh, after about six months, uh, my partner Phil and I were driving up to Vernon to go skiing one weekend in the dead of winter. And we drove through a little town called Sycamuse, BC. And on the way through Sycamuse, Sycamuse's distinction is it's the houseboat capital of Canada. And Moose Mouse Days, don't forget. And Moose Mouse Days, you bet. <laughs> and so uh, we, ended up, uh, we ended up over the course of that weekend, we never did go skiing. Uh, but our partner that was in the truck with us the day we were driving through when we saw all these houseboats sitting there and found out that we couldn't rent them because they were all fully rented for the next summer, he said, hey, I can build one of these. And so that that winter, we ended up building two houseboats and putting them on the lake on the Shuswap. And what that became was that became a company that we started when I was 22 and my partner Phil was 22. And for the next uh, eight years, we built the largest fleet of houseboats in the world. So we ended up building 1,200 rental houseboats all across the United States and Canada, 10 marinas. And our claim to fame, funny enough, our claim to fame when we hit 1,210 houseboats is that we had officially had more boats than the U.S. Navy. <laughs> so we ended up with uh, you know, awesome. 1,000 houseboats. And kind of what was a very unique, and it's funny how it's come full circle even today, is that we sold the individual houseboats to individual investors. The individual investors bought the boats. There were really good tax benefits at the time the boats were built. And then we managed and rented out the boats for the individual investors. So a model that, you know, we ended up duplicating using real estate, you know, years later. But it was a, you know, it was a phenomenal way to spend our 20s. You know, we ended up with some just some big challenges at the end. We tried to go public. We weren't successful in going public. And we ended up selling out the business to one of our big competitors, a big RV company out of Ontario. But sort of for those for that decade through our 20s, we built up a, you know, a massive fleet of houseboats and operated them in Oklahoma, Arizona, California, Texas, Florida, all in the east and Toronto and Ottawa, the Rideau Canal and, you know, just about every waterway you can name in North America. So it was, it was kind of a really fun way to, to kind of get into business. And what was really interesting out of the whole thing from a real estate standpoint is just seeing how much the real estate went up in value because we bought these, you know, marinas in nowhere towns all across North America and just realizing over time how much the real estate went up in value. So tell me something, Dave. I mean, I listen to what you're talking about and you're 22 years old. What I've learned over the years, and I know you had, you know, as many or more staff than I've had, you don't just come across 22-year-olds with that mindset. Yet, having said that, the everyday millionaires that I continue to interview and meet, there is certainly seems to be a trend or a commonality of that entrepreneurship that starts early and tenacity and I would say some bravery or courage to go through. Now, I just can't imagine at 22 years old you doing that and, and obviously you did. What was the what was behind that? Did you were you being supported by your parents? Uh, was it just you and your your partner going, let's just do this and figure it out? Like there's money involved, there's deals involved, there's contracts involved. You're a smart guy. Were you that smart or what were you having for support back then? 
Uh, you know, it was, it was interesting. I guess, you know, at, at the core is we were entrepreneurs. And, you know, back then, you know, in 1982, there was really, you know, entrepreneurship is very defined today. It wasn't nearly as defined back then. And, you know, we were just, we just knew that we wanted to do something. And, you know, I speak a lot at universities. And one of the things I always say to the, to the students is, you know, one of the worst things about university is going to teach you to know what you don't know. Uh, and sometimes when you get into business, it's better to n- not know what you don't know, because if you knew, you probably wouldn't have done it. Right. And I think that's that's really we've de- we determined over the years that if we had had any idea what we were getting ourselves into, we probably never would have started most of the businesses we've started. Um, so, you know, it's about, you know, when you put all the tasks down at once, they're insurmountable. So, you know, if if you just pick away at them, you can really you can really develop them. Um, and, you know, so from our perspective in university, I graduated from university. You know, the first car I bought was fifty two dollars I bought at a police auction. You know, the car didn't have a hood. So when I drove down the highway, people would pull up beside me and see that, the, you know, the, the, they didn't have a hood over the engine because I couldn't afford a hood because we, we were we were literally starving students going to university. Uh, and to get the business started, we actually borrowed a thousand dollars from Phil's mom. It was really the launch pad to get the business started. And then, you know, we fell into some good fortune. We found a way uh, we found a way to actually be able to raise the money by selling houseboats to individuals, which allowed us to open a manufacturing facility. Almost anyone you talk to who has a business where the business grows, it just got bigger and bigger. I mean, we ended up having uh, 400 people in our manufacturing facility in Kelowna. You know, during one period, we're the largest employer, second largest employer in Kelowna behind only Western Star Trucks. So I think more than anything, it was a mindset and it was just, we would just keep chipping away at exactly how we were going to grow and build the business. So when you look back at that time, that period of time, were you just loving life, loving what you were doing? You were into a business, you were, I'm assuming, making money and having fun doing that and then delivering on this experience of a houseboat. And then your exit strategy is to help people make money on their exit. And you made money on your exit as well. So was it, was it just a fun time where you kind of making stuff up as you went? Or did you have some guidance back then? No, I mean, it was an incredibly fun time. I look at it, you know, you know, my job was is that I would have to be at a different marina every weekend. So, you know, 500 or 1,000 people to go on vacation for a week would show up on a Friday or Saturday. And our job was to greet them and load them onto the boats and make sure they learned how to drive the boats and send them on their merry way. And then through that, to just constantly query and talk to the people to find out what things we could do better with the boats, right? So, you know, when we got into an industry, and it's, again, a lot of parallels to real estate, when we got into this industry, Boats didn't have stereos on. You rented a houseboat for a week. You didn't have a stereo. You didn't have a fridge because if you wanted to rent a boat, you know, you'd bring coolers to put your to put your supplies in. Uh, The rooftops didn't have childproof railings. We were one of the first companies to rent a boat where you could actually drive it from the top and the bottom. So, you know, one guy wasn't left sitting downstairs driving the houseboat while everybody partied upstairs. And then we evolved and we added things like water slides off the back deck and hot tubs on the roof. So it was really cool because we were constantly being able to innovate in an industry that no one innovated in. And it was all about how do you make this incredible experience for people? So the fun part was that we were it was just, you know, from May 1st until October 
you are just constantly in this environment of meeting people in their element on vacation. So, you know, it was from that perspective, it was just an incredible business. So, you know, certainly lessons learned along the way, your interaction with people, relationship, understanding how to communicate with people. Uh, I mean, you do that as what seems quite naturally now, but probably there was a lot of uh, practice and a lot of experience that you gained during that period of time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, and, you know, the launch pin from that business. So when we got out of that business, we ended up going to, uh, we ended up being in Calgary and my partner, Phil, called me one day. And, you know, it was kind of interesting because we, you know, we'd been in a partnership for 10 years. And at the end of that 10 years, you know, we weren't sure if we were going to stay in partnership. We thought, hey, maybe we'd go off and do a couple of things on our own. But we decided, you know, what, the one thing, again, we came away with is that we always work really well together. Um, so he called me one day and said, you know what, Dave, I've got a I've got a building in downtown Calgary that I want to buy. And I said, well, what's the deal? And he said, well, it's an it's an apartment building. And I said, you know, Phil, what do we know about real estate? We, you know, other than the fact we bought a few marinas. And he said, Dave, I just think it looks pretty simple. We buy this building, we fix it up. And so I said, well, what do you think we should name the company? And he said, well, let's name it Trump, Trump Developments. <laughs> so he ended, he ended up, we ended up naming the company Trump Developments. And we bought our first building, which was like a 16 suite building in lower Mount Royal, a really great area in Calgary. And we bought the building and it was a pretty simple idea. We bought the building. We put an awning on it. We named it Trump Gardens. Uh, we painted the windows. We took ripped out the carpet and put in, you know, revealed that they had hardwood floor. And we bought, I think, at, you know, twenty five, twenty six thousand dollars a suite. It was right. Incredibly low at the time. And after the building was renovated and turned over, like a week later, someone came and made us an offer at like forty thousand dollars a suite. So, you know, we were like, you know, wow, this is great. We flipped it out. We just put a check in our pocket for like a hundred grand. We thought we were the smartest guys in the world, having no idea that, you know, today, 30 years later, those units would be worth $350,000 a suite. Sure. Um, but it was really cool because it kind of, we learned, wow, this is good. And then we bought our next one and our next one. So we bought Trump Gardens. We bought another one that was a little taller, had a couple stories extra. We called that one Trump Tower. Uh, we bought another one called Trump Place. We bought another one called Trump Manor. So it's kind of neat. I can drive around Calgary today into all these little areas and find these little 10, 12, 16 suite buildings. Um, but another great learning curve is we bought most of them in and around Mount Royal, which was a good area. And 14th Street to the left of 14th Street in Calgary is Mount Royal. To the right of 14th Street is an area called Bankview. Well, Bankview and Mount Royal are not the same neighborhood. We didn't think just because they had a street there that it would be that big a difference. Well, we did the building. We worked our magic on it. We could not sell the building on Bankview for love nor money. So that one we called Trump Dump. We couldn't sell it. <laughs> the true story of being on the wrong side of the track, so to speak. Right. It really was. So, yeah. you know, so that really and that was that was sort of the you know, the, the evolution, I guess, if you will, into the real estate business and kind of a whole new building, a whole new business. So is that when you then is, when did you get into Western properties? Like how did that evolution start to take place? Was it shortly after that? Is or you just, yeah, so, so there, I get a couple of, a couple of evolutions. So the first step was we did several of these apartment buildings. We had quite a good business model going. And then kind of long before Alberta was the darling of the market, there was actually a lot of trouble in Alberta and the Alberta government had a couple of very large buildings in downtown Calgary 
And they came to us with one of the buildings, or they said they were going to put up for sale one of the buildings, which was a 269 build unit apartment building. And we were like, wow, we'd love to bid on that. How much do they want? They said, well, we want about $50,000 a unit. So it was a downtown Calgary on 7th Avenue. I mean, it was an amazing building, restaurant in the bottom, concrete high rise, 20 story building and, uh, you know, a couple hundred units. And they wanted $50,000 a unit. So we were like, well, I don't know how we can raise the money. How do we do this? But the government was taking bids. We submitted our bid and our offer was accepted. So we were like, okay, how are we going to go do this? And we decided what we would do is we'd buy the building and we'd condominiumize it and break it into 269 condos. And we'd go and sell the condos to individual investors, exactly the same model that we'd done with the houseboats. And we'd sell them unit by unit to individual investors. So we went out to the market and tried to sell the condos at $69,000 a unit. Okay. Now we're halfway through our sales program. And one of the top commercial realtors in town writes an article in the Calgary newspaper saying, how can somebody sell these as condos? They're only worth fifty or $60,000 an apartment. They possibly couldn't be worth more as condos. So that's just how new the whole idea of condominiumization was. Took a little bit of steam out of the sales program, but we kept persevering and we ended up selling all 269 units. I think on one day, we transferred 200 of the units at the title office to 200 individual investors on the same day. And that's how we closed on the building with the government. So that kind of launched us into another whole business, which which was the ability to go find investors and find these buildings all over Alberta, BC, Saskatchewan and Ontario, where we could buy buildings and condominiumize them and have individual investors participate in. So take me back a little bit, Dave, you know, into some thought process, because the listeners on this particular show, as there, there'll be a number of real estate investors that are listening to this, you're taking on big projects at a relatively young age. You've worked with a lot of investors. You continue to work with investors. And if you're reflecting back on that, if you were to you know, I want to stop here just for a moment and say, what did you learn along the way that you would share with others that maybe have aspirations of getting bigger, doing bigger deals and engaging it? What what was it that didn't get in your way? Because those are pretty intimidating numbers for most people. Gosh, I mean, it's a really good question. I think at the end of the day, we were just always surrounded by people that, that were really good at sales. And, um, you know, what they really wanted was they wanted a good product go out and offer to their clients. And, you know, you know, that really is that saying, if you find a good deal, the money will follow. And I mean, were we intimidated by the fact that it was a $13 million deal? I mean, absolutely, right? There's no question, right? You know, and if you look today, you know, the investors that paid, you know, paid $60,000 a unit, uh, those units today are probably worth five times that even with the slowdown in Calgary. But at the time, you know, you look back and you think, my gosh, first, first of all, I look back and I go, why didn't I just go buy the whole building and hold on to it for 13 million? Because today that building's worth, you know, a hundred million dollars. Um, but the second part is, is that it, it, we, I think what we were blessed with is we were, we had a lot of people around us, uh, that were really, really good at sales and really had good databases of clients, uh, that wanted to and investing in real estate at that time. This was a really early concept. I mean, now 
you know, groups like Rain have really formalized the process and made you know made it a lot easier and a lot more understandable. But back then, it was it, most of it was just pure education about this is how it could work if you actually owned a piece of real estate. Something I don't want to pick or you don't want to step over, and that you know, as I've gotten to know you over the years, I see a you know a common theme that you have and you mentioned it which was the realtors were looking for good properties to turn their buyers on to that's something that you've always my experience with you is that you've always focused on as much as you want to sell which you do great job of selling and you want to make money because that's what we're in business for ultimately you sell a deal and you do it in good conscience and you can be pretty proud of the deals that you bring to the table in terms of the quality of a particular project were you consciously aware of it even back then that, you know, ultimately this has got to really work well for the investors or the, you know, the buyer, I guess, at the end of the day? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's the, it's a massive paradigm shift and not enough people have had the shift yet. If, if you really look at the way real estate has always been set up, it's always been set up that a developer builds a project or takes a project on and then goes to sell it. And it's a very adversarial relationship. The developer has nothing but the objective of selling it at the absolute highest price, which if you really want to build a client base and get a bunch of people that want to own multiple properties, it's a terrible business model. If I sell something to you and I get you once at the absolute highest price, how many more times might you buy from me if I actually give you a great deal? Right. If I actually give you a great deal, Patrick, and you buy from me once, you might buy 10 or 15 or 20 properties from me over the next 20 years. So to me, our mandate actually became from the very first apartment buildings that we bought and did was just really understanding that, that if you can go out, because at the beginning, we also attracted a lot of people that were just really our friends and family. And actually, that hasn't changed a lot over the years either. And to be able to do that with good conscience, you really have to do it wanting your friends and your family to invest and make money, not just wanting to sell it to them at the absolute highest price where you make the most amount of money. So it really is, in my mind, it was changing a paradigm about who we were as a company versus just being a real estate developer which most of the people in big cities in Vancouver and Calgary just build it, try to get the absolute top dollar, hold on to and sell it, you know, wait till the last day they can sell it for the highest price. Whereas we were about how do we get enough money so that we can do more and more of these projects and everybody, you know, more volume, don't make as much, but, but really make it up on the volume. So at the end of the day, you're looking at a business model that sells real estate, accommodates your investors, but it's relational, not transactional. That's a fundamental difference, right? Absolutely. And it has to, at the end of the day, it has to be a great deal because the other challenge in the world today, there's too much transparency. There's too much, there's too much information out there for people to go on the internet and look up and check and, and do their homework and not to, for people to not know that they're getting a good deal or not. So, yeah, it's easy to track what's really going on. But to your point earlier as well, when you look at, you know, creating wealth, in your case, building it through a business, having those relational transactions, which means that, you know, it's, it's the age old story that if you're if you're going to have a client base, why keep creating new clients when you can actually just keep doing business with the existing clients? And as long as they're winning and you're making money and they're making money, then guess what? All day long, you 
get to run a successful business. Well, and it's really noticeable too, because it, you know I've been doing this now for 30 years, and I would say there's probably been 25 or more companies that have come in to do exactly what we've done. And if you look at why most of them still aren't here, it's exactly that reason. It was, you know, at some point they gouged the clients or they put them into something that just wasn't a good deal. So, you know, I, I always say to people when I get the, the opportunity to speak at Rain, you know, the fact that I'm able to come and speak at an event like a Rain event or an, an event like that, you know, after 30 years and not get tomatoed, that's kind of a big win for me. And you do, you know, it's interesting about, you know, how I see you show up often, Dave, because ultimately, you know, you your business over the past 30 years, you're hit or surpassed a billion dollars in whatever transactions, whatever that really means. But you still like to get out in the trenches. You still like to shake hands. You still like to talk to people. You still like to do deals. And do you ever see that changing for you? Because when I look at, as I speak with guests on this podcast, you know, the question comes up, when is enough enough? And when do you quit working? And how much money do you need? And so when you look at the conversation you have or the reasons you get out of bed in the morning and do what you do, which is getting out and shaking hands and speaking at universities or speaking on our stage or others stage, why do you continue to do it? If, if it's, is it all about the money still for you or what, what is it for you? I love the new things that come about and where you find out is when you're out there speaking and talking to people. And if I'm on a panel, there's usually someone who's 25 years old or 30 years old that's just come into this business. I mean, real estate, property management and investing in what we do is probably one of the least innovative industries left in the world today. And so to me, where am I going to find those innovative ideas? Because you're right, if, if the innovation in it stopped or this became you know, overly innovative, if there's such a thing, you know, I'd probably say the, the buzz and the joy of being in real estate would start to go, right? But to me, it's doing these events. It's talking to somebody else that's doing it. You know, I think I spoke a little while ago at the property management. I talked about how we bought an apartment building in Phoenix. And the owner we bought from had a single sign as you drove into the building. Well, we took over the building and on the day we took over it, on our building, we put up 17 gaudy yellow and black signs. And in the course of that week, the, the first week we owned the building, we had 25 cars stop into our leasing office. Well, the leasing manager had been there for two years and had never seen more than five people a week stop in. So all of a sudden, just simply by putting up gaudy yellow and black signs, we got five times the traffic. So that leasing manager was suddenly excited, could see the more business. So I told that story at a rain meeting and I had someone come up to me six months later and they said, Dave, you know what's amazing? I took your idea of the gaudy yellow and black signs. I put them on one of my apartment buildings in Edmonton. You're not going to believe what happened. I got 15 more people the first week I put up the yellow and black signs, right? So, you know, why do I get excited about that? I have no idea, right? I can't really put a, I can't really put a finger on it, but I look and I go, man, those are the things. And, and it's crazy that we're sitting here talking about those kind of things being the innovation in this industry. Isn't right? that something? Isn't that something when you, when you think about innovation, right? Right. And so I look at it and I go, okay, in every building we buy, that's one of the 25 things we do to every single building we buy. Right. And I don't mind sharing it with other people. I love sharing it with other people who are using it and making it work for them. 
but I also, as much as I give out, when I throw that out and I can have a conversation afterwards with four or five other people, I usually come away with a couple of really good tidbits from someone else that I could use uh, in the in the same in the same way. Now, just speaking of innovation, and sometimes is it innovation? Is it creativity? You know, I don't know what it is, but you have uh, you have a project that is going on in Fort St. John, uh, or may almost be complete, or is complete. I'm not even sure what the update on your Fort St. John. But what was interesting about that was that, I don't know if the right word is innovation, but you saw an opportunity in Fort St. John, and you said, well, how can we make this work? I think the innovation is what you built and how you rolled it out. So give us a little bit of a background on that particular project, because to me, that really showed up as innovation right across the board in terms of what you did, the land you bought, the risks you took with it, the the view of the world you had when you bought it and you continued on with it. So give me a little bit of how that, give me some of that story because I, I think it's a fascinating story. Yes, it's kind of a, it's, it's, it's truly falling into something is what it really is. We, we went up there about four, four and a half years ago and it was just a few buddies and we were just going to go up and, you know, build ourselves a 40 or a 50 unit apartment building. We'd heard of everything that was happening up in the north. Uh, Site C Dam was on the drawing board, a $9 billion hydro project. Natural gas was just kind of in its infancy. You know, there really wasn't that much happening, but we thought, wow, this is a good thing. Let's just go up there and build 40 or 50 unit building. So we went up there and we spent two or three days and we drove around and we literally could not find a site in town to be able to build a building. And on the last day, a realtor that we knew said, look, there is one site, but it's 20 acres. And in order to build on 20 acres, you basically need to build 300 units. And we were like, oh, my God, I don't want to go build, you know, 300 units in Fort St. John. You know, it's a small town. It's only 22,000 people. It's probably a 10-year project to build that many units. And so when we finally settled on it, we figured out that we could take this 20-unit project and we could subdivide it into five or six smaller sites. We had a couple of people that wanted to buy one or two of the sites. And so when we started breaking the risk down out of it, we thought, wow, this is a pretty good project. And we thought, OK, it's not going to take us 10 years. It's probably going to take us six or seven years. And so we set out and broke it into tiny little projects of 20, 30, 40 units at a time. And so that seven year project, we've now sold out 100 percent to individual investors about 250 units have ended up being acquired by individual investors, townhomes, condos, executive townhomes. And that they're all completely rented up in full. And the lesson that we really learned there as much as anything was the biggest thing Fort St. John needed is it needed new product. About 70% of all the rentals in Fort St. John were built before 1985. So lots of people are moving up there taking these pretty high paying jobs. And they're just not prepared to live in a 1983 townhome or a 1985 apartment building. So we kind of hit it, you know, right on the head. The seven-year project that we thought would take ended up taking us just over four years. Uh, we've since acquired another site, uh, and we're halfway through the, the final construction of about 50 units of a 100-unit site. And the real story of Fort St. John, like Fort St. John has not yet had its day in the sun. I think you're going to see 2017, 2018, 2019. By all accounts, that market is is really heating up right now. Uh, but it really hasn't had its day yet. But it just exactly, we went in thinking, here's a great opportunity to just buy something small. And the only thing that presented itself was something big. 
And beyond that, though, you also, aside from seeing the opportunity, which is, you know, as much as you might say, well, it just kind of fell into our lap. And, you know, you, you have to be able to see the possibilities in order for opportunity to even show up. But beyond the building, which is awesome, you also looked into what the market needed. And I know one of the things that was I found was, once again, innovative, was that you considered that most of the guys up there or the people are going to up there are going to be driving trucks and they're going to be having toys. And the reason that was important is because I invest, I have a lot of real estate in Grand Prairie, for example, another oil town where everybody drives trucks and they all have toys. They have their snowmobiles, they have their jet skis or whatever other thing that they've got and they need space. They need a place to park those trucks and the standard garages that they built weren't that. Now, if I recall, at least on some of your units, you made sure there was space for trucks, for example. Yeah, no, I mean, exactly. We, for example, the, the apartment buildings that we built, when the city gave us the guidelines to build the parking stalls, you know, a parking stall in Fort St. John by the city design fits a little Miata. And as you know, nobody up north drives a Miata. They all drive big F-150s and F-350s. So we literally redesigned our entire parking design, got completely away from the city guidelines, and we made every parking stall so that every unit so if it was a two-bedroom unit, they had two powered parking stalls. And if it was a two-bedroom unit, they had two stalls big enough to park trucks. So just simply by doing that, when we started to rent up our units, the people would come in and they'd come to the show suite. They'd, and we wouldn't even tell them what the units looked like. We'd say we have powered stalls big enough for two trucks. And the people would say, I've been looking around for two weeks. I'll take one. I can't find anywhere else in town that beats this. Uh, when we built the executive townhomes, we actually built the tandem garages big enough to park two F-150 trucks, which was completely unheard of, probably the only people in town to do it. So all of a sudden, things that we put in like washer dryers, gas fireplaces, you know, huge parking stalls for the trucks just completely set us aside from everybody else in town that was offering rental properties. So I want to go back because, you know, at the end of the day, on this particular podcast, you know, it really is about learning. And all I have to say is my observations as I'm listening to you talk is that you're not really talking about how much money you could make. You're actually, even the innovation that you're talking about is really delivering a great product to the end user or to your investor clients. And the reason that for me, that's just a big deal because I often hear these conversations about people who are driven because are doing what they're doing because they want to make money. And consistently, I see those individuals struggle. And I don't want to say fail necessarily, but they certainly don't have the level of success that the guys that I know like you who are going, yeah, we're going to make money, but we're going to do it because we're really delivering on a great product. And we are meeting the expectations of the end user, the client. And so anyways, I just want to shine a light on that. And I think there's just lots of lessons and learning in this conversation about what it is that you're doing, Dave, and how you deliver on that. So I just want to say that. I don't know if you have a comment on that. That's very nice. First of all, thank you. I mean, again, I look at it, Patrick, and I look at, if I look at all the people that I work with, and I look at the amount of time that we sit around talking about just how do you make that experience better for the resident in your unit, right? Right. So you're an investor and you've got some money to invest, right? 
if you ever came into our boardroom and listened to the conversations and the excitement of what we want to do to make the residents happy and attract more residents and improve the website and do all those things, at the end, your decision to invest money, when you, when you find people that are that into making that experience great for the residents, the idea that you're going to give them money is just natural. If all they're talking about is here's the design and here's how much money we're going to make and everything else. Because at the end of the day, in real estate, if you have the facility, if you're like the hotel that everybody wants to stay at, if you create that with your properties, finding the money and the places to do it becomes secondary. It's just, to me, it's just all about how do you, how do you drive that experience where the people that are living in your properties get something they're not getting somewhere else. Okay, so I'm going to go off in a little bit of a different direction. We've talked a lot about what you do in terms of your business model, and and that's awesome. And I'm, I, it's not that I don't want to talk about it anymore. I, we can come back to it. I want to know from you, you've had this degree of success. You've been doing this for a long time. I want to know, what have you learned about <clears throat> your relate your own relationship to money, for example, that you see people bump up against, you know, because you're talking to investors all the time, as we are, you know, the Real Estate Investment Act, we're, we're always talking to wannabe investors and, and investors and people who want to learn about investing. But there's a charge around money. You know, in your case, you know, you're not even talking about the blocks you had around money and raising capital and all those things. So what have you learned from your relationship with money that you would pass on to maybe some of the people that I don't know, that you're dealing with? Is there a lesson in all of that? What have, you, what have you observed or learned? Well, I mean, I'd say it this way. The first 40 years of your life, you spend collecting stuff. And the next 40 years, you spend getting rid of it. So, you know, it's, you know, if you're up to 40 years of age, you're probably out there because you want to buy new suits and cars and clothing and, you know, everything else. I mean, you know, my experience is most of, the, most of my friends and the stuff that in, interests me are, I'll spend any amount of money on an experience. I love things where I can get an experience. I can go somewhere, go to game seven of a of an NBA final basketball game, you know, that kind of thing where it's an absolute experience and it's not, you know, I don't need another car. I don't need another boat. I don't need another, you know, my kids are like, dad, there's this brand new water ski boat we should go buy. It's $150,000. And I'm like, you know what? The good news is you guys are in your 20s now. You can have the dream to go buy that. And step up and spend that money. I'm very happy with my twenty thousand dollar, nineteen ninety five ski boat. So, so to me, it isn't. You know, it to me, it isn't about the the toys or the material things that we can accumulate. And so, I guess probably a big reluctance of a lot of investors is, and you know, the world again is very transparent. A lot of people look at where they're going to invest their money, and they're looking to see if the people running the ship are people that are just all about the toys and spending the money because, you know, for a lot of, a lot of investors, that's a potentially a warning sign. You know, if they see someone who's not spending the money in the way that they would, that they would want to see it spent. Anyone who's raising money, I think it's definitely, you learn over the years that it's definitely something that people do watch and see how, how the, how the people raising the money spend it. Are you one of those uh, guys that have always lived well below your means? Yeah, I would say so. I would say so. I mean, again, having had a number of businesses over the years, the whole idea of building uh, building a big business where you're where you're working every day to feed the overhead, you know, I think as you get older, that's just another stress in life that you just don't. First of all, you don't really need, and so 
you know, I, you know, I think I'm probably, you know, more conscious of overhead in business than I've ever been. And, you know, like I said, I don't, I don't find that I'm that attracted to wanting to chase a lot of the big material things. What are you teaching your kids about money? You, you brought up your children and, and I know Taylor is uh, kind of at the helm of a few projects that you got or not at the helm, but at least he's, he's in it. What, what kind of things are you teaching your kids about money and about businesses or just getting them engaged work ethic? What's behind that? You know, so it's, it's quite interesting. To, uh, both my kids own a number of rental properties. Uh, my daughter's 23, Taylor's 25. They both own a number of properties uh, and have had for a while. You know, one of the very early lessons that Taylor learned at uh, 25 is, uh, I forget how many years ago, three, four years ago, I was talking to a property manager down in Phoenix and I asked her how her day was going. And she said, well, it's not going that great. And I go, what happened? She said, oh, a pipe broke in one of the townhomes and it flooded down into two of the townhomes below. And I said, oh, what happened? And she said, well, the two townhomes right now are filled up to the wall with sewage about six foot high. And I said, so the so literally, she said, when they opened the sliding glass door, the sewage from the unit just gushed out right out into the right out of the unit onto the lawn. And I said, wow, that's a bad day for the the people that own that unit. And she says, oh yeah, they're having a bad day. I said, have you talked to them? She said, yeah, I talked to her this morning, and she said she would do just about anything to get rid of those two units. So I said, well, what exactly is anything? And I said, you know, dollars and cents wise. And she said, well, let me call her and ask her. So she called me back an hour later and uh, she said, you know, they're prepared to sell the units for $70,000 a piece. And the units were worth about $130,000 before the the sewage problem. Uh, And and her insurance wasn't going to cover it. So I said, well, you tell her if she'll let me do the repairs, because I'd already called the remediation company, a friend of mine. And he said, yeah, I can repair these for about $25,000 a unit. So I phoned my kids and I said, how would you guys like to own each own a unit in Phoenix? I neglected to mention that they were six foot high and uh, in sewage. Um, <laughs> and as my son says, even to this day, my first deal was a shitty one. Um, <laughs> Genius. So. So, but the deal that I made with him was we were going to buy the two properties and he had to go with the contractor line item by line item without me on the call and completely understand exactly what was being done to renovate the unit, including uh, understanding if anything was over budget and what exactly was involved. So it was a phenomenal learning experience, Uh, you know, ended up ended up when the unit was complete refinancing it. So virtually put no cash into it. Uh, and that became the way that they ended up buying their first couple of properties. So it was really as much as it was about buying the property, it was also really learning and understanding the process. And it's funny how, you know, four, three, four, five years ago that happened, how listening to, to my kids tell the story today, how much they really understand today what they didn't understand at the time but now how it's quite meaningful to them did you have that kind of when growing up were your parents entrepreneurial did they kind of guide you in that same way or this kind of new this is dave just being a dad this was me just trying to figure it out my dad was uh we had a family of four my dad was my mom and dad very middle class Mm -hmm. um you know we were lucky every year at christmas that we had enough money that everybody got presents and uh, you know, my dad worked for the same company for 40 years. You know, we're now, you know, very entrepreneurial family. Uh, but but my parents, that wasn't really their focus. 
How do you define success, Dave? Given what you've accomplished, given where you are today, how are you defining success? Yeah, you know, I really, I think I define it more than anything is just, just happiness, just whether your personal life, your, your business life, it's just, you know, do you wake up every day and are you happy? And if you're not, what are you going to go and do and change that's going to get your heart beating and you're, you know, excited and passionate, right? And, you know, for me, some days that's working for other days. It's, it's, uh, you know, taking long spells off in the summer. I've probably taken four five, six weeks in a row off in the summer you know, every year for the last 15 years. Um, so it's, it's really, it's finding that, but I think at the core is, you know, just really, really asking yourself if what you're doing makes you happy. I don't get that you're a victim to anything in your life. You're pretty clear. <laughs> you uh, take responsibility 100% for it, which would mean what I'm hearing is that you take 100% responsibility for your happiness. You aren't blaming anybody for whatever's frustrating you. You take it on. Would that be accurate? Yeah, I really try to. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, you can't have the victim mentality. At the end of the day, we all get to control. We're, we're on this earth for a short period of time. We get to control what we control and can have good days and bad days. But it really, you can have a good day in the middle of a, it can be bad things happening, but you can still make it a really great day. Question I'd like to ask is, uh, what's your biggest failure that you can recall that turned into be uh, turned out to be a blessing in disguise? Oh wow! Um, you know, I mean, probably over the years, you know, a lot of real estate that you know, probably three years ago, four years ago, I almost bought a building in Cold Lake, and you know, I probably the offer I wrote on the building and the and the vendor didn't accept it was at about two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a unit. And that was when oil was never going to do anything but be $100 a barrel. And Alberta was going to be nothing but the province that we all dreamed we could live in. And, you know, then the, then the world changed, right? The, the oil and the gas industry changed. And uh, the, the seller never accepted my offer. And that offer today is probably those units are probably worth half of what they were three, four years ago. So, you know, probably just some of it is just... Uh, just luck, I guess, and thinking things through a little bit more. You've had uh, some opportunities, I, I think, uh, show up. You're doing some stuff in Fort McMurray. And I mean, with, with what went on with the fires in Fort McMurray, there is lots of opportunity up there. So you're, you're doing some new building up there. Is that correct? Yeah. So, you know, kind of an interesting story about, uh, I guess, a couple of years ago, and when things slowed down in the oil and gas industry in Alberta, um, it had a short-term slowdown effect up in Northeast BC and Fort St. John. Um, and so we could see that we weren't going to build as many properties uh, in 2015 and 2016 as we had in the previous years. And the guy that runs all our construction, a guy named Jim Ferry, was in, for was in uh, Fort St. John. And we were talking one day and, you know, he came to a pretty quick realization that, hey, things in... Fort St. John, we were going to have a slower year and uh, there was definitely going to be a slowdown. Um, and all of a sudden he hangs up the call, calls me the next morning. And I said, by the way, what are you doing today? He says, oh, I'm in my car. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to Fort McMurray. I said, what are you doing in Fort McMurray? He said, well, taking three days off work and I'm going to go figure out if we can build some houses here in Fort McMurray. And so, no, let's have a meeting. And you just decide it was more just complete entrepreneurial let's go do this a week later he showed me the ads he'd been running in the papers in fort mcmurray 
He'd gone and met every real estate office in Fort McMurray and said, look, here's the kind of builder. Do you think builders like us are needed in Fort McMurray? And the realtors and the locals all said, absolutely. And the result of that is two weeks later, we landed our first five or six houses. And in 2016, we finished the year being one of the largest new home builders for the insurance companies in Fort McMurray. So he ended up moving all the crews that looked like they were going to slow down in Fort St. John. And so all those crews are now as busy as can be in Fort McMurray building building brand new homes. So that to me, the lesson there is, is, you know, just how do you build that into the culture of the people you work with? Because I'd love to take credit and say it was something we did, but what it really was, it was just a, a just a just a guy who's really, really driven, who saw, you know, hey, if we need it, there's opportunity here. I just need to go and make it happen for the company. So questions I like to ask are, you know, in terms of because you've been around and you've, you know, you've achieved the things that you've achieved and the innovation, you know, the word innovation keeps coming up for me is just how uninnovative it really is, but how innovative it shows up in the world of real estate. You know, sometimes I think we overcomplicate things. And uh, that's just, you know, me thinking about how the heck is putting up a, you know, big sign innovative yet. It's just how it shows up, right? What kind of insights in the world of business do you think have, are really obvious to you that you, you know, you know, you don't see it as they don't seem to be obvious to others, but they're really obvious to you. Anything that you can put your finger on that just go, this is so obvious. I don't know why others don't see it. Does that show up for you? Yeah, I mean, you know, really, again, another cool story in Arizona that maybe that makes me think about what you just said. So we have a 24 point checklist that we do on a building. So we buy a building, typically 100 or 150 units in Phoenix. We do a 24 point checklist and we do that checklist two weeks before we close the day we close and two weeks after. So about a year ago, we did our we designed this checklist and we went to the building. And when we finished the checklist, the score on the building was three out of 24, right? So the the asset manager called me and said, Dave, this is like horrible. He goes, you know, there were lawn chairs that were supposed to be ordered for the pool. They haven't arrived. The signs haven't showed up. The leasing office smells like none of the things that were supposed to happen has happened on this building on turnover. What do you think we should do? So I said, well, you know, the one thing I remember from high school and university is I remember that when I got a bad mark, it was always in big red ink. So I said, why don't you take a big red pen and just write three out of 24 across the report, scan it and send it to everybody on the property management team. So he sent that out there. And a half an hour later, a half an hour later, the property management, everybody started chiming into the email. Well, it didn't work because of this. It didn't work because of that. And everybody had a reason why it wasn't there. And so we got everybody on the call and I said, look, I don't really care about the reason. The reason to me doesn't matter. All that matters is we got a three out of 24. We've got another building coming up down the road. What are we going to do to make it better? And so everybody got committed and said, we're going to make it better. And by the next time, we're going to score in the 20s. Well, sure enough, a month later, the next building came online and we scored 22 out of 24. Okay, and I don't think since that building's come on, we've ever scored below 22 out of 24, because if you think about it in our business, in the real estate business, most of what you do is, first of all, coming up with the ideas and then the speed. The thing that differentiates between us and the giant real estate companies and the REITs is if we're nimble, we could do things way faster. 
And if we can do them way faster, that's where we really ultimately make all our money. So we scored 22 out of 24. I don't think we scored below that. And then on the last building, the next one after that, I got a photo on an email from one of the asset managers. And, you know, the 24 things we do are we change the signage. We make the leasing office smell mango tango. We put candles in the leasing office. We, we fix up the pool. We, we pave the parking lot. There's about 24 things we do, and we do them over and over in every building. But there's one picture at the bottom of the report he sent me of that scored 22 out of 24. And what he did is he went out and he got a food truck on the day we took the building over, and he parked the food truck in the entrance of the parking lot to the building. And the food truck sat there from three o'clock in the afternoon on the day we owned the building till six o'clock at night. And every resident that came home that day got a free burger and a drink. Okay. Yes. So what do you think those people now think of the new building that they moved into? Well, right. What are they going to think? Right? What they, they're left to think of awesome. They left to think awesome. And I, and I sat there and I literally got home and I, and I sat at my computer and I wrote Tim an, an email and I said, you know what, Tim, I thought the yellow and black signs were awesome. I thought the pool furniture was amazing. But honest to God, the food truck just takes everything we do to one more level. It's just one incredible way that in one day you get to go and connect with 200 of the residents in the building so that right off the bat, they know there's a new sheriff in town and there's a there's a different company and a different group of people that think differently about them, right? So again, if I said to you, we put a food truck on and we serve burgers and fries, you probably wouldn't say, Dave, you're the most innovative man I've ever met in the world. But in the context of our business and in real estate, it, it's just, it's a very, very powerful change to just an old way that this business has been operated. So in the world of leadership, and who you show up as a, a leader. Is that something you're very consciously doing? Because we talk about innovation, we talk about how we need to surround, I, I don't always say we talk about it, but as leaders, we know we have to surround ourselves with people that are smarter or better at certain things than we are. Is that a very conscious thing for you? Is that something that you've learned and focused on over the years as to, you know, aside from putting great people in the place, but to be a great leader? Is that something you work on? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think at the end of the day, it still shocks me how many people hire people and then they're prepared to do their the job of the person they've hired. So I think, you know, if you look back and I said, you know, what what have I changed the most in 30 years in business? It would be being extremely clear with people when I bring them onto the team, exactly what I want them to do and what our clear expectation that they're going to do and how much of it they're going to do that I'm absolutely not going to have any involvement in. So, you know, I think that really forces you to make sure that the people you bring on, you know, are really, you know, A players. It's amazing how many people will interview someone and then at the end, not even ask them, do you think you're an A player, a B player or a B plus player? Right. To me, I ask every time I interview someone, it's the number one question I ask, because if you said to someone, are you an A, a B or a C? No one's going to admit to being a C player. But if you ask them if they're an A, a B plus or a B, if they don't jump out and say they're an A player, then at least, and, they, and no one will admit that they're a B player, but if they jump out and say I'm a B plus player, at least gives you a thought to say, am I really hiring an A player for the team, 
right? Because at the end of the day, as a leader, that's our number one job is how do we attract and find those people? That's a great question. I guess there's the conversation about delegation versus abdication. You delegate, you don't abdicate. What I've heard in other conversations and just in this conversation you were talking about where you're actually scoring things and how we hire staff, you are also measuring your results. And, you know, you talk about a 22 out of four and uh, versus a three out of 24. Those are measurables that you can actually look at the performance of the team or look at the performance of the business and you go, hey, this doesn't cut it. How do we make it a 24 out of 24 or a 20 out of 24? It's just an obvious thing that you do. And when you consider the success you've had, I think that would probably be good guidance for anybody is, are you measuring the results and how are you measuring your team's performance in achieving those results? Again, it really speaks to the industry we're in um, because if you talk to 99% out of all the property managers, they've never been scored. Property managers most live in a world where their job is to keep all of their clients seven out of 10 happy. They deal with the three clients who never call them and never visit them. They're the best clients they could have as a property manager. And the worst clients they could have are the three that call them and they're, they're mean and rude and, and don't treat them well, right? So, it, you know, again, in the world of property management and real estate investing, all you have to be is the person that's paying attention to your property manager, being nice to them, you know, doing nice things for their staff. And you immediately move into the into the client profile that every property manager wants to deal with. They either want to deal with the client that's easy to get along with. They don't mind dealing with clients that are demanding if they know what they're talking about. But in their perfect world, they'd rather deal with the client who never calls, never checks in. And, you know, as you says, completely abdicates what they do. You know, when you talk about measuring results and I think about scalability and the opportunity to scale a business, and we both have seen in the past where people get in their own way of scaling. So they'll buy a number of doors and and all of a sudden it's got there more than they can handle. And as I was listening to Janet speak uh, as she was on her stage a little while ago, one of your other partners, Janet LePage, she was talking about 4,000 units that I think you have invested in or you, you guys own in Phoenix. It's somewhere around that number, as I recall. Is that correct? Correct. So in order to manage those, because we talked about property management and we talk about scale and how we make that work, you actually develop the system for rating those. So you're literally sitting in Vancouver and are pretty, you've got your finger on the pulse of what's going on in Phoenix, but that's because you've got some system, some process, you actually have rating and measurable. Can you expand a little bit on that? Because was it, is it a Something you developed, was it a system that you developed around that, Dave? Yeah, it's a system that we, that our team developed. And really what we looked at is just, you know, what are the most important things, right? So, you know, I said the yellow and black signs, right? Why does that matter? Because at the end of the day, the number one thing that matters is how many people are coming into your leasing office every week or how many calls are coming in or how many email inquiries or how many website inquiries you're getting, right? So at the end of the day, it's very easy to scorecard and say, you know, we have 30 properties of the 30 properties, you know, how many leads came in the door per each property? You know, if I have 30 properties and one has five leads and one has 50, somebody that's getting 50 is doing something better than someone that's getting five. So typically all we do is we scorecard how many leads came in the door, how many showings we had, 
of the showings that came, how many did we convert from showings into leases? Because you can look at the percentages, you can look at the overall number, and you can very, very quickly tell which of the leasing teams is, is scoring the highest on each of those criteria, right? You can score the cleanliness of the site. You can score the cleanliness of the leasing office. There's dozens of things that we score. And then where it really gets powerful, Patrick, is we take the scorecard on showings, on conversions, on leases, and we rank them by property and we share them amongst all the on-site managers every single week. So at the end of the day, nobody wants to show on the list in any category as number 30. People don't go to work every day wanting to do a bad job. They go to work every day wanting to get recognized for doing something well. So you can tell at almost every site, if someone scores a 30, they're not going to be in that spot again the next week. And so, you know, it's really just about how do you find the key things that you want each of the on-site and the leasing team to focus on? And then how do you scorecard it and show them the results across all the properties? So that comes back to the relationship that you have with the people that you're working with, whether they're directly on staff or not, and then also having something to measure that success against. So in other words, it's not really ambiguous. This is the rating. This is what you scored. And you need to improve on this score. What do you need help to do to improve on that score? What, where were we responsible for you not hitting that score? And where are you responsible for not hitting it? So the other one that's really huge is then we, we have our asset manager. He, his mandate, we have two asset managers, 30 properties. Their mandate is they have to visit every property every week. So they're on site between the two of them at every property every week. And they carry around a stack of $50 gift certificates to the local restaurant. And when they find someone on site doing something right, they give them one of the the $50 gift certificates. If someone just leased up five units or somebody got five renovations done in a week, they make sure they single out and find the one or two people and they give them both a gift card. And where this really took another step was that after we did that, we did that for quite a while. And then what we did is we started taking a picture of the people just with our asset manager handing them the gift cards. And we took a picture of them. We called them attaboys. And then we circulated the picture of those individuals and we circulated it with the property manager and to everybody in the property management company. So all of a sudden, you know, two people that are working on site at a property now get acknowledgement from everybody in the head office of their property management company, okay? Now think about this, Patrick. You're working on site on another property that's not one of our properties, and you see somebody at a Western Wealth property getting acknowledged by the property management company. When you have your turn, guess which property you want to go work at next? Every time. You want to come, you want to come work on the Western Wealth properties because – because the energy and the spirit and the acknowledgement and the and the appreciation is there. And quite frankly, that drives a lot of people every day going to work. So from our perspective, it's a it's a fabulous tool for us to have goodwill, not only on the site, not only with the property management company, but everybody in the property management company to know, hey, those if I can get onto one of the Western Wealth properties, that's a real win. That's about environment. So you guys, uh, you and your team are very consciously creating an environment for success that people want to hang out in and be a part of. 
And the environment is of let's work hard, but let's be effective. Let's have some fun along the way. Let's reward the team and make sure that everybody on the team is acknowledged for working hard and that you're listening and paying attention to what it is that they're doing. It's not falling by the wayside. It's appreciated and it's actually acknowledged along the way. So the environment for success is whether you're consciously creating it in that way, but ultimately that's what I'm seeing is just an environment for success. Right. And again, it's driven by, you know, I'd love to take credit for it, but it's really driven by people like Janet, um, Jim Ferry, as I mentioned in Fort St. John, it's driven by a lot of those people. I mean, Janet's got a heart the size of Texas. She just, that's just all about who her DNA is. It's about, you know, on the first day of school, she got a whole bunch of people to sponsor and all the young kids in all of our buildings got given a backpack for the first day of school. So all the, all the people with kids in all the buildings were called into the leasing office and the community office. And there was just a hundred backpacks sitting on the floor. So you could pick off your Star Wars or whichever brand of backpack the kids wanted. The first day of school, they got to take a backpack and go off to school. Again, something like that. And, and Janet's motivation for doing it is that she's got young kids. It just really felt right for her to want to do it. But again, when you take it to the level of the business, it gets those people that live in the communities so connected to wanting to stay living in the communities that it just goes way beyond what rent they're going to pay and everything else. It just becomes just an overall much bigger connection. Well, it goes back to the, you know, the fundamental philosophy that's proven time and time again. If you consider what you're bringing to any relationship instead of what you're getting out of that relationship, you're always going to be ahead of the game. You're always going to win in that regard. You're going to attract the people you want to attract because you're actually aligning with what they need. And it's about them, not about you. That's totally, you know, that seems to be where it always goes. I'm going to go off in a little different direction here, Dave. Tell me about EO. Yeah. So um, EO is an amazing organization. It's called Entrepreneurs Organization. I was very fortunate. I was one of the first kind of 20 members of it that started uh, almost 30 years ago. Uh, And a group of us uh, built up the first chapters in Canada. Uh, And today there's chapters all around the world. There's 12,000 EO members. To be a qualified member, you have to be doing more than a million dollars in sale, in sales, um, and own or be the CEO and own your own business. And um, you know, it's exactly one of those things. It's a volunteer organization. I got involved. Uh, I was the international chairman, president in 1993-94 when we opened up Europe and built the chapters. We really built up first in Canada and the U.S., and then grew the chapters uh, in Europe and now in China, India. Africa, you name it, all around the world. It's one of those things where, you know, it took a little bit of time at the beginning and then it just took over our lives. Those of us that got involved, I mean, we were spending 30, 40 hours a week on a volunteer thing, building up these chapters. But, you know, the beauty of it is it's ended up being some of the best friends in my, you know, in my life or people that I know through the organization. Kind of like Rain, it's a huge support network for entrepreneurs. It's a place for people to go when you go, hey, I can't afford to make payroll this month. What do I do? You know, you can't go talk to your mom or your dad because they have no idea. They've never been in a business. And so finding people that you can connect with on, uh, geez, I need to find a CFO or I've, uh, you know, I'm spending too much time working or whatever the problem is, not just business, but otherwise. Um, So it's been 
it's been one of those organizations where it's just been, you know, it's been phenomenal for every minute I've given to it. You know, it's, it's paid, paid back a thousand times. It's just been really quite amazing. So EO is still going on. Is it, is it something that if somebody's listening to it, that they could go on online and look it up and find, find it? Yeah, go on uh, uh, eo.org. And uh, there's a Vancouver chapter, Calgary chapter, Edmonton chapter, chapters all over Canada. Um, and I think there's about 100, 125 members in Vancouver, same Calgary and Edmonton. But, you know, it's just it's like minded people. A lot of people join it thinking, wow, there's all these people and they've got big businesses. And can I go be great organization? I can go sell them something. Um, and that's generally the appeal that gets a lot of people to join. But that goes away pretty quick because at the end of the day, it's really about finding people that are like you that, you know, all have businesses and are all trying to, you know, all trying to deal with a lot of the same challenges. And so it's really been just an amazing collection of meeting such an amazing collection of people around the world. Cool. Okay. So I'm going to spin it another direction. Now, as we start to wind down and kind of come to a conclusion, there's some questions that I like to ask. I think they're valuable. They're always insightful. You at a young age, got on your entrepreneurial track. You, you know, were pretty successful out of the gate. You were driven to do what you did. But now reflecting back, uh, you're older, wiser. What would you tell your 20-year-old self today? Well, I don't know. I tell myself anything different. I mean, my DNA is I'm an entrepreneur. And so, you know, if you put me doing anything else, you might as well lock, probably have locked me in a cage. So, you know, in a perfect world, there's things you would have wanted to have happen differently, but that's not how the world works. So, you know, I, I don't know that I don't know that I would have told my 20 year old self much differently. You know, at the end of the day, we're all on a journey, right? It's it's you know, you can wish things would have happened faster or wish this didn't happen or that. But, um, you know, I look at my journey and I go, wow, I've had a I've had a blessed life. I've had just amazing things happen in my life. And, and so I, I don't know that I, I don't know that I would go back and tell myself anything differently other than, you know, just probably what I say to when I talk at colleges and universities, just get out there and just find something that lights a fire in your belly and just do it. Right. If it's, if the fun and the happiness and the fires there, just, just do it. What would you tell, or what would you, if you sit here and think about it, the reverse of that, what would you want to tell your 75-year-old self today? Wow, uh, same thing, happiness. I mean, to me, to me, it's about, it's about the balance and the happiness and the, if I wasn't getting the, the buzz I get from working, I'd say don't work as much. If I wasn't getting the buzz I get from traveling, I'd say don't travel as much. So, you know, it's, it's, it, everything is about finding that balance of, you know, how it works, but just find the parts and the things that you love to do and make you happy. You're a pretty confident guy. What aren't you good at? Uh, I'm not really good at a lot of the detailed stuff. I'm, I'm good at the, you know, I love the ideas. I love the, uh, you know, I hate accounting. I hate, uh, you know, I, I love the finance side, but I hate the accounting. So I've, you know, I've been very fortunate in surrounding myself with people that are really love to do that and are very good at it. I'm not artistically probably the most creative, but you know, I, I think again, knowing, knowing those things and really looking for people when you, when you come in and do them, you know, if, if you ever brought me out to your place in Mount Lehman and asked me to build something, uh, you'd be in for a big disappointment. Uh, we go down every <laughs> year, we go down every year to Mexico 
and we build a, a 20 by 10 house over the weekend for a poor family. So we've been doing this for 16, 17, 18 years. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a family that's usually living in a, under a tarp and, and they get this amazing 10 by 20 house, nothing to, nothing that anybody would be too excited about, but for them, it's just huge. Right. And, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, I'm working on this house and I'm working on the saw and the, every time you go to build, they give you a site super who works with you to build the house. And he comes over to me and he says, so Dave, what do you do? And I said, well, you know, we have a company, we're the largest construction company in Northern BC. And he looks at me and he goes, they don't let you on any of the tools, do they? <laughs> and I said, well, no, actually that's true. So, you know, I, you know, I'm, I'm terrible at the construction stuff. I have a good eye to make sure what gets built is what I like. And again, I surround myself with people that are really great at it, but you know, those are, those are probably the, some of the things that I'm, that I could, I could do without. If you weren't doing this and you decided you were going to take on another profession, what would you take on? Wow. It's funny. I've never thought about that. I mean, I, you know, I, I'd be an entrepreneur at the end of the day, the, the product is irrelevant. It's the mindset, the building, the teams, the, the creating an environment where you just get, you know, you just get people to innovate, right? You know, as excited as I've been about any of the innovations that I've been any part of in any of the companies I've been involved, I'm always the most excited when there's a new huge innovation that I had nothing to do with. Because really what I, what our jobs are is how do we, how do we create an environment where people feel confident enough to just go try something, right? I love that the food truck idea came about. Nobody got a phone call to say, I've ordered a food truck. I'm spending a thousand bucks. It just, here's the food truck. We did it. By the way, here's the photos. Hope you guys like the idea because we did it. That's cool. That's always great. I think I would concur. You know, nothing makes me, you know, prouder or happier is when somebody on my team does something and they hit it out of the park and I had nothing to do with it and they just get to come up and brag about it. I just love that. So it's always right. encouraging. So when everything's going wrong, like when shit hits the fan, what's your internal self-talk around that? How do you, you know, you talked about mindset, you touched on it very, very briefly. So when crap's going really tough, what's your mindset around it? What is your thought process? You know, I've, I've just been so ingrained over the years in uh, in what I need to do to feel good, to feel great, to get excited, to be happy, that whether there's a bad day along the way, you know, I always say to people, give me the give me the bad news in the morning and the good news in the afternoon, mm -hmm. because if you give me bad news at six o'clock at night, it doesn't really matter. I'm going to go to bed at nine o'clock or nine thirty. It's not going to affect whether I fall asleep or not. I'm going to get up early. You know, if it's really bad news, I'm probably going to get up at 5.30 instead of 6 o'clock. And I'm going to put my head down and I'm going to go figure out and solve it. But I'm not going to lay there and lose sleep and, and get all stressed out over it. You know, most of what is, most of what we fear of never really happens. So I've, I guess I've learned a long time ago that, you know, however bad it sounds, probably by the time we digest it and break it down into the right size problem, problem's not nearly as bad as what we've, what we've got it built up in our head that we're losing sleep over. So is that, is that something, Dave, you know, it's a, it's an interesting topic, you know, because people are, you know, anxiety runs rampant, the depression, uh, there's always a lot. Well, I shouldn't say always. There's often when I, you're talking to people, they're, they're not sleeping at night. It's, you know, Sleep is one of those things that people are sleep deprived. 
So what is it for you? Was it always that way that you were able to take news and handle that? Or is that something that you had to work on over the years that you're very conscious of? You know, I don't want, I know you, we talk about the, the nature of who we are, the character, the DNA, but is there a component of personal or professional development that you've done over the years that got you to that place where you know to park that kind of stress and those kinds of, uh, that kind of news when it arrives at six o'clock at night rather than six in the morning? Well, I mean, I, I can't speak for other people. I just know myself. I need my sleep. And when I'm stressed, I need it more than ever. So when I'm dealing with a bunch of other people that are stressed, half the time I just want to say to them, look, go have a nap. Go go lie down for half an hour and call me in an hour and let's let's really talk about it. Because, you know, again, if you, if you go back, you know, the world fell apart in Alberta three years ago. If you'd look at all the things that we all wrote down that were going to affect us because the world fell apart in Alberta, how many of them hit as hard as what we wrote down and what we lost sleep over? You know, there been some hasn't been as great over certain things, but but at the end of the day, it hasn't been as bad as what we probably originally went through our brain that was going to happen. And so, you know, I look at it and I take every situation and I go, you know, how much time in our life would we want back worrying about things that we really spent a lot of time worrying about that we shouldn't have, right? I was worried about my kids. Are they going to get? Are they going to get through high school? Are they going to get into university? Well, they magically did. Wow, they're going to graduate university. I wonder if they're going to get jobs. Well, they magically did. So, you know, to me, I think it's about it's about giving giving the problems the context of really how big a problem is this, and and you know what exactly do you what ex- how much energy does it really deserve? So you're you've just gotten great or you maybe you've just noticed that about yourself. It's one of the things you're good at is getting giving yourself perspective into what's really going on and how much time you spend on it. So it's just a way of for you to check in and do that. Once again, it's, you know, in, in, in the learning curve of people listening to this as we have conversations with individuals like yourself who have had success and done those things. I want to create those, you know, patterns for people to look at and say, you know, where am I? taking something that is small and making a bigger deal. How do I learn to shift my perspective? So that's why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on that because, uh, you know, as you and I both know, as we're dealing with people, there can be a lot of stress around things that just settle down. It's not nearly as bad as you think it's going to be, yet in our minds, we're making it that way. Right. Okay, so uh, let's have a little bit of fun. Kind of a rapid fire, a couple of rapid fire questions as we round down. On a scale of one to 10, how weird are you, Dave? Solid nine. I'm all over that. I so agree with you. Um, <laughs> room, desk, or car, what do you clean first? Uh, desk. Can't leave at the end of the day with anything on my desk. It's got to be uncluttered. Okay, got it. Favorite tune. Do you have one? Uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Went to the concert, saw Don Campbell there. <laughs> okay he was there okay got it um favorite movie just saw lion really enjoyed that so if heaven were to exist and i always say I'm not here to debate whether it does or not and you get to the pearly gates what do you want god to say to you when you arrive well my belief is that heaven does exist and my way in is for all the good people that i know that are doing good things in the world that i happen to be friends with so that's kind of my in, I think, to get into heaven. Um, <laughs> Otherwise, they may pass. It's about yeah, who you know. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> what are you grateful for, Dave? 
Uh, I'm grateful for a lot of things. Grateful for our, my family. Grateful for you know two phenomenal kids. Uh, you know, grateful to be in a situation that I, you know, I've got my health. I went through uh, you know a period where you know my partner died from an extended battle with uh, with uh, prostate cancer. So you know, to see that, to know, kind of to see how that feels is uh, you know just grateful every day that you know we're we're here having fun doing what we want to do. That's awesome. Dave, it's been really great to have you on the show. Lots of uh, really interesting conversation. Your story is, uh, I find, very, very interesting. Lots of lessons to be learned along the way. I appreciate you being on the show and just want to say uh, thanks for doing that. My pleasure. Absolutely my pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others. Share with your friends as it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener. If you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.